Amen. Thank you, choir. Well, we're continuing our brand new sermon series started last Sunday on the book of Ezra, which is great because it's new. A lot of people don't, have never really studied Ezra to any degree. I had mentioned that Ezra covers that period of time where after Israel has been exiled by, the, by Babylon, Persia is now the new world power. So the land is pretty much destroyed and empty, specifically Jerusalem. The temple was completely demolished. And then God begins to bring them back slowly. And I had mentioned last week that I do see a parallel for what may be happening right here in our own country and maybe in Western Christianity where things have really gotten bad and are heading in that direction. And who knows what God might have for us going forward. Maybe there is some rebuilding and renewal. And maybe you thought, well, that's an interesting opinion that you have, Pastor Rick. Is that factual? Let me back it up with some facts to show you the somewhat dire picture that we're in here in the United States. In the year 2020, Gallup, probably the most reliable sort of uh, polling uh, company maybe in the world, said in the year 2020, 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That was down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. So just 24 years ago, it was 70% of Americans. Now, for the first time in the history of our country, it is less than half. More Americans do not go or belong to any type of church, synagogue, or mosque than do. Uh, In 2021, there was a lengthy study by a, a company or organization called Faith Communities Today. And this is how they describe their study, the largest ever congregational survey of 15,278 religious communities from 80 different denominations in faith tradition. So Roman Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, the whole picture. And you can find this study online, and the statistics are not encouraging. All right. So the median, by the way, median is usually a better way to uh, find the middle than is average. The median worship attendance, so they did it 20 years, two decades, For churches in the U.S. dropped from 137 people 20 years ago. That was the average gathering on a Sunday morning to 65 people. More than cut in half in the last two decades. The median age of both pastors and church members is increasing very quickly. Now that's not to say there's anything bad about being older. Some of you guys are older. That's great. It just means you're not being replaced by people who are younger who are then creating a lower median. Does that make sense? I love older Christians. Uh, I'm, I'm turning into one, right? So, but if we're not being replaced by those who are younger, there's something wrong. The average age of a pastor in the year 2000 was 50 years old. In 2020, just 20 years, it is 57. That's a considerable difference. We also know that statistically, the younger you are, the less likely you are to attend church or even to have any religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, So millennials, for a long time, were the least church, the least Christian, the least religious affiliated in any group in the history of the United States. They've been replaced by Generation Z, the generation immediately after them. Uh, They are now the least church, least religiously affiliated least commitment to any religious uh, group in the history of the United States. That is not a good trend, and it's happening very, very quickly. Happening not just here in the United States, really in Europe as well. 
as I said, there's really good news, especially if you look around the world. Christianity is thriving. It is more vibrant today than it has ever been in the history of the world in the last 2,000 years, but not so much here. But I wonder, is that a bad thing or a good thing? We know that God is sovereign. He sits on the throne. And it could it be that God is calling us to rebuild and to renew? Now, how do we do that? How do, how do we begin <laughs> that process? Well, let's look at Ezra chapter 1, 5 through 11, and see how the book of Ezra begins. How does the rebuilding and the renewal of God's people begin? And maybe there are some insights for us here today. So it's got to start somewhere. Let's learn where it starts. This is chapter 1 of Ezra, verses 5 through 11. We'll have it on the screen. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the application of his word this morning. Rebuilding and renewal begins somewhere. Here's where we're going. Uh, verse 5, it begins with a ready remnant. A ready remnant. Uh, verse 6, it begins with generous support. And then 7 through 11, it begins with the unseen God. All right, so look at with me at chapter uh, 1, verse 5. It begins with a ready remnant. You may remember that Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, who is the most powerful ruler up to that point in time in the history of the world. He rules over almost all of the known world. He has this unique policy in which he likes when individual sort of kingdoms or individual little countries get to worship their own god. Because then they can intercede on his behalf. He's a religious guy. He worships Marduk. But nevertheless, he wants all of these other kingdoms, all these little countries, to worship their god, intercede on his behalf, so he can be prosperous and be successful. Not necessarily a bad policy, right? Uh, Very different than Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so among the many, many nations he does this with, he does it with Israel. Sends them back to their land to rebuild their temple so they can intercede in his behalf. And in verse 5, the heads of the fathers' houses rise up and get ready to go. Notice that. The leaders take lead. Um, Now, this is a big sacrifice. You have to understand. They're leaving everything. They're leaving their homes. They're leaving their livelihood, their businesses. By this point in time, they've become settled in to Babylonia. Uh, They probably have friends. They probably have connections and so forth. They're going to go back to a rubbled city and be homeless, probably live in tents for a little while, with very little resources, trying to rebuild, start from scratch, the city of Jerusalem. And yet, there is a group that goes. And we learn specifically, this is a group from 
really three, ends up being really three tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Let's we'll start with them. Um, if you know anything about Israel's history, um, you know that the, the northern kingdom were ten tribes. They separated from the southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom is the one that outlasted the north. The southern kingdom is only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. That's it, right? That's the only tribes that survived uh, after Assyria destroyed the north. Some of the north, other tribes do come back. We learn about them in the New Testament, for example, the land of Galilee, of Zebulun and Naphtali and so forth. But for the most part, you only have these two tribes and the priests. Remember, Levites were a special tribe. They lived among all 12 of the different tribes, and they were the priestly sort of group. And so some of them are able to return. Point being, there's only a remnant of the tribes as well. Only two-twelfths, whatever that is, one-sixth of the tribes really survived. If you add the Levites, maybe a little bit more than that. But God stirs up their spirit to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now you have to understand, millions and millions of people lived in Jerusalem before this. What has happened to them? Many of them died. They were killed in the war. Many of them were brought to all throughout the Babylonian Empire, which has now been replaced by Persia, many of them were intermingled with the peoples around them, intermarried and so forth, and they have been lost to history. Some of them remained there in Babylon and were still seeking to be faithful. And God calls back a small remnant. How many? Tens of thousands. They went from millions and millions of Jews only tens of thousands left. They come back in, in different waves to begin to rebuild. Only a small portion of what once was now exists. And God has now taken this group of people who are now chastised, disciplined, right? They have seen the hand of God. They have suffered greatly. They have lived in exile in a foreign land, surrounded by paganism, surrounded by other gods, and have still remained faithful to the Lord. They are hardier, healthier spiritually, tougher, and ready to start over. By the way, that's not new. We see that throughout scripture. Uh, we see that when it comes to Israel, right? You have Israel come out of Egypt. Everybody knows the story of the Exodus with Moses did you know that out of all those people that came out of Egypt, that was, I believe, hundreds of thousands, came out of Egypt to go to the promised land of Israel, do you know how many of those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people um, that left Egypt made it into the promised land? Two. <laughs> not 200, not 200,000, two. Two made it. Now, of course, many kids were born within that period of time, and so many, many more than two enter into the land, but Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that actually left Egypt and made it into the promised land. Not even Moses went in, as you guys who know the story. And you know how many miles it is from Egypt to the promised land of Israel? 40. And how many years were they in the desert? 40. That's a mile a year. Babies crawl faster than that, right? <laughs> a mile a year, and instead of bringing them straight across, God keeps them in the desert for 40 years and does what? chastises them, makes them stronger and healthier. They live in a sort of exile until they're ready to enter the land. It's God's way. You guys all know the story, many of you guys know the story of Gideon. 
Uh, Gideon was a famous judge in Israel's history. He has this big, massive army of Israel, and God says, you have too many people. Uh, so we're going to thin the herd here a little bit, and ends up being, out of that massive army, only 300 soldiers go to attack the enemies of Israel, and they win. They use God's way, and they end up winning that war. They basically cr- cause enough confusion where the enemy army begins to attack itself. Some of you guys know the story. Why? So God gets all the glory. And even when we come to Jesus, Jesus calls out 12 apostles. Why 12? Because of the 12 tribes. He's reconstituting Israel. He's saying, I'm creating a new, true Israel that will begin to spread and spread and spread from within. A healthier, hardier, tougher group of God's people ready to serve. Friends, God does the same thing today. He works through a ready remnant. You know, oftentimes, you know, we talked about churches, you know, shrinking. Many churches, of course, have, have closed. By the way, a lot of the results from that survey happened before the pandemic. It was right about at the pandemic, published in 2021. So 2020, where the end of their results, the, the reality is things are probably far worse than they said, right? Because the pandemic has just accelerated a lot of this. It's actually worse than the picture uh, that they present there. We've seen churches in our own area, many of them close, right across the street, First Congregational Church, the Alliance Church, which became Transformation Road, uh, Newton Junction Church, and um, many, many, La Portland Street beginning to close. People ask the question, is there any hope? I have, I'm part of a church, someone might say, who, 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 that's dying. You know, we, we once were vibrant, and now we're down to, let's say we were at 1,000 people, and now we're down to 50 people. Not many thousand people churches here in New England, but down to 50 people. Is there any hope? And the answer is, is there a remnant? In other words, out of that 50 people, are, are there a group of people who genuinely believe the gospel? Genuinely believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that the message of the gospel is saving for sinners, and that it needs to be proclaimed. And I would say, if there's a remnant, maybe it's 10 people out of the 50, right? There is absolutely hope. Begin praying. Begin sharing the gospel. Begin doing the work of ministry and see what God does. Right? God works through a ready remnant. Uh, That's true of of you as an individual. If you say, look, I'm the only Christian in my family. First of all, praise God for you. I mean, I I don't know that experience, right? I came to faith with my family. I've had the support of my parents since I started as a Christian, and that's meant the world to me. Those who are the only Christian in their family, I can't even imagine what that's like. To, to, I remember I went to seminary with a friend who was part, was, uh, his parents didn't believe, his siblings didn't believe, and yet here he is putting aside a, a life of business and going to seminary and not having the support of his family. I'm just amazed. But what happens if you're the only person in your family, you're the remnant, you begin to share the gospel with your family slowly and carefully. Someone else, now there's two, and there's four, and there's six, and then it begins to grow. If you're the only Christian in your office, you know, where you work, Begin to share the gospel and see what God begins to do uh, from there. If you're the only Christian in your school, um, that's changed. I've seen that. I, I grew up here in Haverhill, um, you know, K through 12 public schools here. Um, I don't remember barely one other Christian, Bible-believing Christian in my high school. And I married her, all right? So, <laughs> no, there was only, a, there were a hand, maybe a handful of others, just a, just a few. I remember and yet, see what God does over time. You might say, what about our nation? Pastor Rick, I'm concerned. Those statistics and where we're going as a country. Could it be that God is creating a 
healthier, hardier, stronger, tougher group of Christians, a healthy, a ready remnant that he's going to do a mighty work with. I don't know. God knows. I hope so. We're starting to see that, certainly statistically. This is uh, from an article on Christianity Today talking about this drop of uh, Christian affiliation in churches, and uh, specifically with the pandemic. Quote, at least in terms of religious attendance, the pandemic appears to have pushed out those who had maintained the weakest commitments to regular attendance, the study's authors wrote. In other words, those who were already pretty committed stayed. Those who were not very committed tend to drop out. So what we have is a more committed group, right? Essentially, a ready remnant that God is able to use or ready to use. Look at verse 6. It begins not with just a ready remnant, but with generous support. Generous support. Who is going to support this massive work of rebuilding the temple and renewing God's people in this rubbled, desolate land? Verse 6. And all who were about them aided them, helped them, supported them with vessels of silver and gold and goods, with beasts and with costly wares. Now, that's not surprising because those who were here for last Sunday's message, you know that Cyrus commanded them to do that. So even if you didn't really want to support this work or you didn't actually care about this work, you might have given them something because you don't want to be on Cyrus's bad side. So you say, I'm going to go ahead and hand over something at least to them. But look at the next section, the next verse. Gold, goods, beasts, costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So you have a bunch of folks who are also freely giving to this work. This is probably in reference to fellow Jews. Not all who were in exile came back. And that isn't necessarily bad. Some of them might have said, look, I'm too old. I'm too sick. <laughs> I don't have the energy to go back and do this. It's just not, I'm not capable. And some just might have said, that's not my calling. And, and rightfully so. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they were in pretty high up office in Babylon, they stayed. There's no reference that they ever came back to the land. And they had a good influence there, first in Babylon, then in Persia. But even if you are not one who is going, what are you doing? You're going to be one who is supporting, one who is sending, one who is giving. That's how this whole thing gets going. Now, that's God's means of supporting his ministry. God chooses his people to give to his ministry so that the gospel goes forward, both here locally and around the world. Could God do it a different way? You know, could God do it with government support? Could he do it with, you know, grants from different nonprofit organizations? Could he do it with local churches starting businesses and using the income from those businesses to support ministry? Could he make gold fall from heaven? Right? Yes, God can do anything he wants, right? But his regular means of supporting ministry is the faithful and ongoing giving, ongoing giving of his people. In fact, I think the two are actually connected. I think when God's people do faithfully give as they're called to do so, then he begins to bless in other ways. And let me just say, I don't know what people give, so if you're sitting there going, Pastor Rick's picking on me. I don't even know what people give. That's not even my information to know. But I have seen this is that when the giving is faithful, God tends to provide in all different other means. And I've seen that happen in multiple different ways. 
uh, I, I've talked about this before, but some of you got to know this. Uh, when I started 12 years ago, we began receiving an anonymous check in the mail for $5,000. comes in about twice a year. I have no idea. It's been 12 years. I have no idea where it comes from. It comes from some firm in Boston. Uh, maybe one of you guys is responsible for that. I don't know. But uh, most likely it's not. Someone outside the church. And the last one we got was for seven. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I went from five to seven. The market's not good right now, right? So, but nevertheless, God just chooses to provide, enabled us to get the front doors changed and some other things. So thankful for the way the Lord provides. So my encouragement to you here in a new year, make a commitment to tithe. I, I, you know, and I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not willing to do. Uh, it's become such a part of my life now, I can't imagine not doing it, honestly. I'd feel selfish. Not, I'd be like, this is just what you do. You give your first fruits to the Lord, and he always tends to bless the rest. And you trust him to give over and above at times, as you're able. Sometimes people will say, Pastor Rick, I can't tell you how often this type of thing happens. I have some extra. I'd like to give. Where should I give to? And I want it to be anonymous. Happened to me last Sunday. <laughs> it happens that often. Give and you give generously. And then, friends, you do so looking at your own heart. I think this is why God wants us to do this. It's why he doesn't just make the gold fall from heaven, usually. Because we need it in our own heart. I've never met a generous person who is miserable. The two just don't go together. <laughs> generous people are never miserable. There's something to that, friends. He calls us to faithful giving. If you want some very practical specifics, fill up that pregnancy care center bottle, right? That goes to a great ministry right here in our city. This is a common criticism that I hear about Christians. You only care about the life in the womb and nothing afterward, right? First of all, it's not true. If you look at statistics, it's not true. But here's a great way to prove them wrong because our local pregnancy care center offers support, formula, strollers, baby carriages, and everything that's needed for our, our, our young moms and young dads right here in our, in our own city and in Lawrence and in Lowell. Give to our missions budget next week, right? No, two weeks, two weeks. In the 29th, we're doing this additional um, offering. What an opportunity to say, pray and say, what does God have for me to give to, uh, to missions to make sure we meet our obligations and then some, and then some, right? Wouldn't it be great if we just blow that out of the water and we're able to give more? I mean, no, no missionary is upset to get an extra check. I'll tell you that much right now. They're happy about it. And one more thing, we are planning on putting in a handicapped accessible restroom right here in our church facility. This is much needed, right? So we have two claps here. If you know our bathrooms, they are very, <laughs> here we go. I'll clap for that one too. Uh, much, much needed. We have very, uh, our, our, our bathrooms just aren't great for those who are handicapped. And we have folks like Dennis, like Jim Hamill, when he's able to make it, others who need handicapped accessibility, consider giving above and beyond. So, God's people, why, why does God choose to do it this way? It's his means, it's his method, the faithful giving of his people is how he supports the work of ministry. We see that right here in chapter 1 of Ezra, and it's been ongoing ever since. And then 7 through 11, you might say, Pastor Rick, what are you going to do with this list of bowls and basins? I mean, what, what, what application is there for us here today? 7 through 11, it begins with the work of an unseen God. 
Cyrus does actually help support this work, and he does it by returning what actually already belonged to Israel. He brings out of the, ves- the vessels of the house of the Lord, the temple, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away from Jerusalem. When the temple was destroyed, they took all that was in the temple of any value, gold and silver and so forth, and they took it, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar did, kind of the opposite policy of Cyrus. He had his temple, and he would put all of the idols or other sort of worship stuff of the, of the nations that he conquered, he would take that and put it into his temple as if to say, my God is better than your God, right? I'm the, I'm the true king, and my God is, rules over your God. And so here, look at all of your idols basically bowing down to my God, which was probably Marduk. But notice what happens here. Cyrus says, it's time to return it. So all of this was preserved. Much of it was preserved. He takes out all of these things, gives it to Mithridath. We know nothing about Mithridath other than what is mentioned right here. He's the treasurer and gives them out to Sheshbazar. Uh, Shesh, we're going to hear a lot of names in Ezra, so get ready for that. But Sheshbazar is the prince of Judah. In other words, he's the governor. This may be Zerubbabel, which, who comes in later, or it may be the guy right before him. There's actually some debate as if, whether that's a, the Babylonian name of, of Zerubbabel or not. But basically, he numbers them out, and we're actually given the the exact numbers of these items in the temple that God has preserved. And now, in a sense of almost saying, your God, Babylon, is now defeated by the God of Israel. All this is now being plundered out of your temple and brought right back to the temple in Jerusalem. And as he ends this section, they are brought from Babylonia to Jerusalem. There's the movement of restoration from Babylonia back to Jerusalem. Now, a few things about these temple items that you may have missed. One, notice there is no idol. Israel has never had an idol. They're bowls. <laughs> They're basins. They're censers. Anyone know what a censer is? A censer is a little container that you use to burn incense in a temple, basically. That's what a, a censer is. These, are, these items are important. I mean, they're, they're saved and preserved for a reason. The, the corporate worship, the gathered worship of God's people matters. But they're not idols. In fact, the only thing in the temple that you might actually confuse with an idol would be the ark. And notice that the ark isn't mentioned. Uh, the ark of the covenant was discovered by Indiana Jones. No, just kidding. No, the ark of the covenant was captured by the Babylonians probably stripped down of its gold, burned, and has never been seen in history ever since. Um, actually, they never replaced it. They didn't rebuild the ark. They would, they would go into the Holy of Holies and literally drop the blood of the sacrifice straight onto the floor, even by Jesus' day. Because you don't need an ark to worship God. In fact, you cannot have an idol. The, the other nations would mock Israel because there's no image Where's your snake? Where's your eagle? Where's your calf? Where's your representation of your God? And their response would be, there is nothing in this world that can compare to him. He is the unseen God who is not just a God, but the God over all of heaven and earth. And we build a temple to show that he dwells with his people, but he is in no way limited to this space. He's at work everywhere and anywhere he chooses to be. And what a reminder it is to Israel 
that they never needed a temple to worship God even at all to begin with, nor an ark or nor anything of these, any of these items in the temple. God has been working faithfully for these 70 years, and he will rebuild that temple as a grace to them, as a place of worship. If you want renewal, and you want revival, and you want to see the church rebuilt stronger and healthier, put your hope in an unseen God. God doesn't care about our numbers. He doesn't care about whether we have a million people, you know, in, in, a, in you know, worshiping in our country or 100,000 or 10,000. He's the unseen God at work in our hearts and minds. And he may be doing a work that we have no idea at this point in time as the gospel begins to spread. Pray. Put your trust in him. Share the good news. Share the gospel that God is saving people. And recognize that he is the God of all things. Rebuilding and renewal has to begin somewhere. It begins with a ready remnant. It begins with generous support. But most importantly, it begins with an unseen God who chooses to begin his work. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. <laughs> Isn't that great? Martin Luther King said, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And could it be that what's happening is for our good, that God might create a more chastised, healthier, hardier, enduring people who will serve him well. Let's pray. Our great and gracious Father, thank you so much for the reminder from your word that you are indeed the unseen God at work in our hearts. Lord, you are drawing people to yourself. You are transforming us from within. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, we put our trust in you. We recognize, Lord, that we want to be faithful. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No matter what the situation is around us, we put our trust and hope in you. Help us to be generous as we support you. And we pray, Lord, you would be, even now, even today, preparing for a great and mighty work right in our own hearts, right here in our own church. But we do pray for our country. Lord, we would, we would pray that all that's happening right now is in preparation for a new, fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, doing something that magnifies Christ and strengthens your people to the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.